Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we will be discussing the 1986 Chernobyl disaster in which the reactor number four of the Chernobyl power plant suffered a full meltdown and explosion. This resulted in the worst nuclear disaster in history, both in terms of cost and number of lives impacted. This is episode one of a two-part series. So it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, I took an impromptu, unplanned break. Just just everything else was very busy, to be honest. And I just kind of fell out of momentum after kind of having a few few months of, of trying to start again and then trying to stop. And I was like, no, I'll just have a proper break and then come back properly. So I'm, I'm pr- pretending that that was the end of season one and now we're into season two. And that makes it feel much better. Uh, so yes, I am now actually planning so we're into season two now season two is going to be 10 cases long um not necessarily 10 episodes because in this case we're going to do two but yes it's going to be a set length of time which i think will help with the planning and the momentum and everything around that yeah thank you very much if you're listening to this and for sticking out with a little bit of a break uh, it's much appreciated if you do uh, want updates then definitely follow me on instagram i'm at when it goes wrong pod and i give updates there of when i'm coming back anything like that and whilst i have you here and i'm asking for things please do uh, rate the podcast or whatever you're listening to uh, and tell a friend because it's always nice to get the the feedback i guess that people like the podcast by more people listening to the podcast um and yes let's now get into it so uh yes chernobyl this has been such a such a mission to um actually research because there's so many different parts to it and there's so many different sources and coverage that has just been a lot and now the cat's meowing what are you meowing about typical um and so yeah it's taken a long time but I also just want to put a big warning at the beginning of this in that I'm surprisingly I'm not a nuclear physicist so whilst I have done my very best to understand as much of the nuclear physics as is needed to explain this because I think it's important to understand like what actually happened I am not an expert so there will be if you are more familiar with nuclear physics than I am there will be something I say that you're like oh that's so wrong Yes, it probably is. Um, if you're using this as any kind of study aid, just just double check on the uh, the physics part uh, to make sure that I've got it all right. But anyway, let's go back back to uh, to kind of building Chernobyl and and what happened beforehand. So we'll go back now to the 70s and 80s, and at that point, Chernobyl, which is in the Ukraine, the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And at the time, they were in the Cold War, which was the fight between the USSR and the US to kind of win the war on whose regime was better, whether, you know, communism or capitalism was better. And so as part of this Cold War, there was a lot of obviously fights to be the best in certain areas, you know, thinking about the moon and um, all of the different weapons they were building, for example. But one of the things that they were one of the things they were fighting on uh, was being the one that could produce the most nuclear power because that kind of showed that they could they could power their ginormous state and they could make the power for everything that they needed in order to you know conquer everything that they needed 
they wanted to do nuclear power and it very much was kind of like the powerhouse of the USSR. And by getting all this power, they could be like ahead in terms of all the tech development and it just it meant a lot to them. So this meant that they put loads of money into researching and building lots of nuclear power stations across the Ukraine, across the USSR. And it was, yeah, a really a big boom for, for building these power plants. And so in the early 70s, it was decided that they needed a new power plant in the Ukraine. And they thought, why not make it the biggest one they've ever had? Um, so they decided that they wanted six reactors in total. Uh, and they decided when they were looking at locations, they eventually decided on a location near an existing town called Chernobyl. And so they decided, why not give it that name? So they named it after that it was in a good location because it was pretty far away from some of the big cities so it was quite far north of Kiev uh, and kind of south of Belarus so it was in a it was in a good spot it had a lot of space around it a lot of access to all the things that they needed and they decided that they were going to build what was called an RBMK reactor I'm going to talk a bit more about RBMK later on but they decided that was the type of reactor they were going to build which was a Soviet designed reactor so something that they were you know keen on pushing putting forward uh, and alongside building the power plant they also decided that they built a town nearby and that was the town that was called Pripyat uh, and it was what was known as an Atomgrad. I feel like my pronunciation of Russian things is going to be awful in this Ukrainian things I should say it's gonna be awful in this so please do forgive me <laughs> but yes they basically wanted to build a town alongside the plant because obviously as the plant got bigger it needed a lot more people to run it the town could then uh, be where everyone in the plant lived and where their families lived and also like all the building and maintenance and and all the things that went around with it so it made a lot of sense to to build this this town at the same time and so the state appointed a man called Viktor Brukhanov to lead and oversee the building and the operation of the plant. He was in the, the Soviet party at the time, so he was going up in the ranks of his status and was clearly getting getting pretty pretty high because he was only 34 when he was selected to build and run this and he didn't have much nuclear experience at all he had had some things to kind of do in the in the power generation industry uh, but he definitely was not a nuclear expert at all uh, but he got to work and got building uh, this power plant and they soon had uh, four reactors built. So they built the first one in 77, second one in 78, third in 81 and fourth, the one we're going to talk about the most, um, in 1983. Uh, and so they had those four all operational at the time of the disaster in 86. Uh, and they had been running for a reasonable amount of time by the time we'd hit 86. So it had been working, and, and the one that we're talking about specifically had been working for at least two years before the accident happened. Whilst uh, this accident did happen, uh, they were also still building other ones. So uh, reactor number five was only six months away from completion when the disaster occurred, and there was plans for number six as well. Since the time of opening, uh, Pripyat had grown into pretty a pretty large town. It had a lot of young people in it because it was quite a young young industry. Lots of young families, lots of children. Uh, they built schools and stuff where they were. So uh, yeah, there was there was a lot of people there. And in general, I would say that the people that lived in the town were pretty unaware of any danger of of living there. Obviously, people understood what radiation was, but 
power plants had been safe there had never been any kind of major incidents before this point so they knew that they were they were weren't weren't in any danger as they thought and they actually really liked living there being being that close to the power plant not not just because of work but also because they had a much better standard of living than other towns in the ukraine and across the ussr uh, because of the the kind of state and how it was organized a lot of the people in the cities were you know living in dorms sharing facilities had really tiny private places but in the in Pripyat there was a lot bigger living quarters there was lots of nice you know parks and things to spend time in and so it was you know quite a desirable place to live and so it therefore did end up getting pretty large however even though it was kind of explained that everything was safe. Uh, not all was good at the plant. And so outwardly, of course, they dis- they reported an exemplary safety record, as you would expect. Uh, but in reality, that was not the case. So there was a report from 1983, which stated there had been 27 accidents in, in the time that it had been operational, many equipment failures. And generally for the people that were working in the plant, they didn't have the, the most faith. They didn't didn't have kind of a great reputation as to what was going on. Uh, and it was clear that even though outwardly they'd said, yes, everything is perfect. These these RPMK reactors are the best thing ever. They weren't. Um, and they were, yeah, there wasn't a, a kind of perfect previous history to, to what they were doing. That's the background as to where how we got to the nuclear power plants. Now let's attempt to talk about nuclear power. Physics was never my strong suit. I actually really enjoy physics, but I find it very hard, <laughs> mainly because it's lots of maths. Uh, and I also felt like with physics, like there'd be this explanation that you would get, like the one I'm probably going to give you. But then if you actually dig into it, it's all completely different. <laughs> like, so just yes, it was a, it was a tricky a tricky subject probably for a lot of us. But yes, let's talk a bit about what the nuclear power is. It it works fundamentally in the same way as other generator-based power. So something creates heat, heat, um, whether that be the sun, coal, whatever that is, something creates heat. That heat boils some water, the water turns into steam, Steam push, pushes kind of fans in a generator and then the energy from, from the kinetic energy of those fans moving is captured um, and, and stored to, to create energy. That, that's all kind of hopefully relatively easy and simple. Uh, lots of steam, lots of, of generators turning around generating power. But it's what creates the heat that is different. And in this case, um, it's not the sun or coal creating the heat. It is a chemical reaction called nuclear fission. And in fission, it's basically where a atom breaks apart. And when it breaks apart in terms of its uh, centre, it will release heat. And this is specifically within a type of element called uranium, uh, also plutonium, but mainly uranium we'll talk about today, and specifically a type of uranium called uranium-235. And so when you hit the atom of a uranium-235 and you hit it by a, with a nuclei, it will split into 
different elements and it will also release nuclei and these nuclei then go on to hit more uranium 235 atoms they split up uh, they split into two things that that split produces heat that split also produces more nuclei the nuclei go and hit the next one and it's this like never-ending kind of sustainable chain reaction of 235 decaying and and turning into these different elements releasing nuclei the nuclei kind of continues on so this like kind of in theory never-ending reaction that produces lots and lots of heat because when uh, that reaction takes place where the the nucleus is split um, it releases a lot of energy so (laughs) i hope that makes sense but it's kind of fundamental i guess in this point but basically the key thing to know is that it's this chain reaction so something happens it breaks apart the thing that it breaks into hits the next one that then breaks apart uh, releases heat and hits the next one um, and then it's just this kind of ongoing reaction And so, like I say, it's usually uranium-235 that they use, but that's actually a very rare element in the world. uh, And most of the world uh, has uranium, which is 238. I I used to know what the numbers stood for. I think it's like... Isotopes are two or more types of atoms that have the same atomic number, so the same number of protons in the nuclei, um, but differ in nucleon numbers due to the different numbers of neutrons in their nuclei. So there you go. Hopefully that explains it. I'm I'm not going to spend too long on it, but you can see that it's different. So they give an example, carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. They have, each of them has the atomic atomic number of carbon, which is six. uh, But then, so that means all of the atoms always have six, but then the neutron number is different in 12, 13, and 14. So six, seven, and eight. So uranium is... 92 so it will always have 92 but then it will vary in terms of its number of neutrons so uranium 235 has 143 neutrons uranium 238 has 146 neutrons there we go i feel like that was a tangent that no one would care about um but if you did well done there you go we learned some more chemistry um, so yeah, basically, what I was trying to say was that there's uranium-235, which is what they use. It's really rare. Um, and so they often find uranium-238 uh, and they use what's called an enrichment process to basically turn it into 235 because you need a certain amount of that type of uranium in the core in order to make the reaction happen and for the reaction to be sustained. Um, and that uranium is made up into uranium rods and those rods are inserted into a reactor and that's what is used. So there you go. Um, so the chain reaction that we talked about before that large tangent is uh, can be created naturally and because it can naturally increase. So yeah, every single time the nucleus splits, it will release nuclei. And so it can either kind of exponentially grow in terms of the, the chain rate because every single time it splits, it re- re- releases lots of, of, of nuclei, they, lots of neutrons. Those neutrons go and hit more nuclei, split more, and it kind of kind of spirals up out of control. Or it can fizzle out. So actually it, it hits, maybe it only knocks one out. It hits another one, doesn't really knock anything out. It could kind of go either way. And I kind of in my head think of it as a bit like fire right so it can either just grow and grow and grow and kind of be exponential and and take up everything or in some cases it just doesn't have what it needs and it just fizzles itself out 
trying to keep the reaction at a stable rate is something that is really key in a nuclear power station. You basically want this self-sustaining rate that isn't going too high, that isn't going too low. So, you know, every single time um, the, the nucleus is being hit, it's re- it's releasing a set number of nuclei and therefore the reaction is going at, at a similar pace. But that can be quite tricky to do. And so in order to do that, they have a few different mechanisms that they use. So they use something that basically will absorb these extra neutrons. So every single time the uranium splits and these neutrons are being uh, released, instead of those neutrons being allowed to hit more uranium nuclei and, and splitting again, things in the reactor will basically absorb those neutrons and, I don't know, put them in their back pocket for, for, for a rainy day. But they'll just take them, take them on without creating any further reaction. And so uh, we we call these uh, absorbers and they take in the extra neutrons and they don't undergo fission. So they're just a type of element that just naturally doesn't undergo fission. I don't know why. Someone in physics can tell you. Um, and so one of these ways that they do that is through something called a control rod. And so a control rod is basically made up of a metal that absorbs the excess nuclei. Um, so it takes a nuclei in and stops it continuing the reaction. These rods are super important um, and there's lots of them. So there's almost over 200 within a core and you can kind of take, put in and take out rods as you need in order to keep the reaction at the rate you want it to go. So say you want the reaction running quite quite heavily because you want to be producing lots of power, then you might be taking out uh, more control rods. Say that you want the, the reaction to slow down a bit. You want, you have lower energy demands. You potentially put some in. Say you wanted to completely stop the reaction. You probably put all your control rods in because they'll just absorb all of the nuclei. So that is one of those very important things. And those rods basically uh, move up and down, sometimes automatically, sometimes by manual means, uh, and so that then you can you can really control that reactor. Also something called a moderator. So the moderator, basically where, where the absorber absorbs the neutrons into itself so that they can't do any more, the moderator basically slows them down. So it, it provides, it means that they're slower, therefore they don't hit and don't uh, proceed at the rate that you kind of expect them to. So let's go back to fire. Think of uh, an absorber as being something that puts out the fire and then maybe think of a moderator, something as, that kind of controls it and, and keeps it in a, in a set space and, and state. So yes, they've got two, those two things and those two things are used in different ways in order to stop uh, the reaction taking over. Water has another really key part, not just as a moderator to uh, slow the neutrons down, but also to keep the reactor cool. So water moves through the outside of the reactor and takes away the heat. And this is really important uh, because you don't ever want the reactor overheating, you don't want accidents happening. So that's a general overview of nuclear fission. Probably not the best one that you're ever going to hear, but I'm hoping we get the point. As a summary, we've got uranium-235, we've got the, the undergoing fission where basically the nucleus is split, releases energy, it releases nuclei. Those nuclei go on to hit more of those atoms to create more heat and to, to, to kind of carry on the chain to keep that chain in check as you go. Uh, and in order to keep that chain in check and stop it going out of control, you have absorbers in the control rods and moderators in the water and water also acts as a heat reduction system. 
there we go. So in the case of Chernobyl, they built these things called RBMK reactors. And these are Soviet-designed reactors, and they basically used more water um, and more graphite as their moderators. Uh, and it meant that basically, I don't totally understand it, and uh, it's a bit different, but they had designed themselves in a way so that they had used more moderators, and it meant that they didn't need, first of all, they didn't need as high-quality uranium as other plants, uh, which was good, so they didn't have to do as much enriching. And it just meant that the how they built the plants was a lot easier and didn't need a lot of like custom designed equipment like a lot of the things a lot of the building materials could be constructed on site rather than having to be constructed by a specialist and then and then shipped in so it meant that they were pretty quick to create and quick to to be put up the reactor control rods in the RBMK reactors also had a slightly different design. Uh, so the rods themselves were boron. So that is the the metal that doesn't undergo fission, that basically just absorbs these excess nuclei and puts them in their back pocket. But they are end they ended with graphite tips. And so basically if you so basically, think of it as like there's a big circle and you put lots of rods in that circle and it's also like it's a big bowl, lots of rods in the bowl and around the bowl is water. And so you can then put control rods also into that big bowl of water in order to create, to, to absorb as you want. But when the control rods aren't in that big bowl of water, you want something there in the voids. You don't just want to leave these voids where nothing is there. And so they use these graphite rods that are basically underneath the boron uh, to, to kind of hold their position, basically. And so graphite isn't as effective as boron as influence in the, rea- the reaction. Uh, and so that can, can cause bit of a problem and so they yeah these rbmk reactors to be honest didn't like i said earlier didn't have a great reputation they were generally found to be pretty dangerous and prone to accidents and they are you know quite often found issues with the design but they didn't never amended the design of them they basically just made the manuals more complicated to say like well this could happen uh, so make sure you do these seven other things uh, which wasn't great uh, especially in terms of you know the mental load <laughs> which which uh, is very hard for the operators they weren't built to the best spec and then they um, so i've got quite a few quotes in this episode and the next episode um which i'm about to read one out but i just want to before i start quoting things just let you know that they all come from the book midnight in chernobyl by adam higginbotham and at the end of the next episode i'll talk about resources but he said Alexandrov also saved money by dispensing with the containment building, the thick concrete dome built around almost every reactor in the West, intended to prevent radioactive contamination escaping from the plant in the event of a serious accident, but which, because the RBMK was so enormous, would have doubled the cost of each building. So that gives you a little idea for for the kind of cut cross that they were potentially doing as part of this. Right, enough, enough. I've been talking for 25 minutes. I haven't even got to the day of the test. Um, so uh, I apologise that both of these episodes are going to be really long. But let's go into it. So we're going to talk about the actual day of the meltdown and what actually happened. 
A safety test had been planned for Chernobyl for literally years at this point. And so when I first heard about it, they were like, they need to do a test. I mean, they really needed to do this test. It had been like two years of this thing being operational. They'd never managed to do this test. So I guess it makes sense. And this test was basically testing the resilience in case of a power outage. So as I mentioned before, if the plant lost power... Uh, and and say the reaction stopped, then they still needed to be able to cool that reactor down because that reactor is like boiling hot, right? So more than boiling. And so um, they needed to be able to cool that down. They couldn't just turn off the cooling system when they lost the power. If the power went out, then it was expected that a generator would come on, continue managing the cooling. So cool, they've got a backup, you know, usually using the power, power goes out, fine, generator. But there is going to be a pause, right, between the power being lost and the generator coming on and actually doing something. So they had created this method where basically in that pause, in theory, the kind of kinetic energy of the turbines, which were being powered by the the steam, would continue to, to turn because of kind of the excess kinetic energy in them. So that would mean that the cooling systems would continue to work in that like very short period between the power being off and the generators starting. And so they needed to prove that this worked, um, but obviously it meant quite a bit of, of practice and things needed to be in place in order to do that. And so they planned it to link in with some routine maintenance. So they, they knew they had to take the reactor offline. They knew they had to stop producing power so they could do some maintenance. And they thought, great, um, as the plant is being powered down, we'll do this test hunky-dory and so they decided that they would do the test on april 25th 1986 um in reality because of what i'm going to be talking about we kind of cross over midnight so it's really the 25th and 26th that we're going to be talking about um and so it was planned to happen in the day on the 25th and the team who were working during the day were ready for it they knew this test was coming uh they knew that they were going to have to to power the reactor down ready to go but there were demands from the power network. So basically, there had been a lot of demand for power that day by people across the USSR, which meant that they were not permitted to ramp down uh, just to, due to the demand that they were getting. And so they basically ran the reactor pretty high for the majority of the day. And it only gets to about 10pm when they finally get permission to do the test. And that's kind of issue number one, because by that point, they've handed over from the day team who were prepared for the test to the night team who weren't necessarily prepared for the test. They were basically thinking they were coming in to a reactor that was powered down. They were definitely capable of doing it, uh, but they were not as prepared as those that were during the day. So they wanted to start doing the test around 1.23 a.m. And so they needed to bring the chain reaction down to a lower rate in preparation. So like I said, talked about the chain many times, the chain was going, they wanted the chain to be slower. So they wanted not as many reactions to, to be occurring at the time, less power to be put out. But it's really hard to manage the reaction to slow it down. And the power level at this point in the reactor drops very low. And this is probably... <laughs> I realise now, why did I spend all this time reading into this stuff when I probably can't explain it very well? But basically, skip this if if you're not interested in the, in the lots of details. But basically, it's really hard to manage the power at that low level because of something called xenon buildup. And xenon is a byproduct of the nuclear reaction and it acts as an absorber. So it is one of those other types of elements that will take in neutrons and will not undergo fission. So it's this kind of absorber slows the reaction down. 
And xenon builds up slowly within a reactor. So as other isotopes break down, things like iodine, uh, they create xenon and then xenon slowly but surely poisons the reaction. And that's what it's known as. It's known as a neutron poison. And so when it drops to these really low levels, it's basically known as being in the xenon pit. Uh, so where you've, you've basically got too much absorber in your, in your reaction. Um, and this is being created by the xenon is kind of related to a reaction that was six hours ago. So you're kind of dealing with something from a, from a long time before, which is why the fact that the the plant had been, the reactor had been running so high all day and comes into the equation. Dropped really low into this xenon pit um, and it's really hard to bring it back from that point. So the, the reaction, you know, think about, go back to fire. Think about, you know, when a fire is basically gone out, right? And you're kind of like blowing at it to be like, come on, come back. That's kind of where it's going. You're getting to this point where you're like, it's not going anymore. Fire, it's being rained on. How are we going to kind of get this going again? They did their best to basically pull the reaction back up. And in order to do that, they had a lot of this xenon absorber in the in the reaction already. So they needed to remove other absorbers, right? So what they decided to do, which makes a lot of sense, is remove the control rods because the control rods are absorbers. They're absorbing the reaction. Let's take them out and then the reaction will, will start up again because it's not absorbing as many neutrons. So they basically pulled out basically all of them. They pulled out over 200 rods out of the core, which is basically most of them. Um, But to be honest, they weren't too worried because, I mean, nothing that bad ever really happened to, to the core. And they always knew that if they really needed to, they had one button and that button could be pressed and the button would put all of the rods back into the core. Save the day. And so they decided to to do that and they were successful. So they pulled out those rods and the reactor managed to go up to the rate it needed. Because of the tests that they were running, they also kind of turned off a load of like safety systems at this point um, uh, so that they could run the test successfully. And they finally, 123, had it at the right rate-ish and began the test. As it began, uh, the turbine momentum decreased so basically what happened at this point was that we had this accumulation of steam so now where you normally would have water which is acting as that moderator to slow down neutrons uh, when the test began the turbine momentum kind of decreased which meant that there was the reactor was getting hotter the steam wasn't being taken away as much as they expected it to which meant that there was less water circulating and in the core and this was bad because steam is not a moderator so water moderator helping keep the reaction down doing its great job steam bad not helping to get reaction down uh not doing its job so um (laughs) this means that uh with more steam the reaction has the ability to go faster and faster because it's not being moderated then this again another chain becomes a bit of a, uh, a another chain reaction. So the water turns to steam, the steam's in, steam increases the reaction, the reaction gets hotter, the heat produces more steam, the steam makes the reaction go faster, it gets hotter, <laughs> there's more steam. So it's this like kind of never-ending little cycle that we really don't want uh, when we are doing nuclear physics. Let's think of the fire again. Uh, Basically, someone is like blowing oxygen to it and it's just growing and growing and growing (laughs) and and not what you want. And this is called the positive void coefficient. 
if you would like to read about it. Um, I'm sure there is a much better explanation out there. And um, there's many, many coefficients, I have to say, in nuclear physics. Uh, and that's the problem. So um, basically, the, the reaction, therefore, just starts getting really big, really fast. So not what the, the um, team in the control room were expecting. They were kind of expecting uh, for it to, to just remain stable. And then it turned off, basically. But that was not the case. Um, and I'm not going too much into the, all the people that were in the control room, uh, but there was uh, the unit leader was a man called Dyatlov, and he um, we'll talk about him a bit later. But he was kind of responsible for the instructions that followed this. At this point, the team could see it's getting out of control. Oh no! But they had an emergency scram button, uh, which was called the AZ5, and the AZ5 basically was designed to drop the power in the reactor to zero as quickly as possible. So what AZ-5 did was basically put all the rods back in as quickly as possible, get that reaction off. The team in the test room were like, oh, it's all fine, we'll press the emergency button. Nothing bad can happen now. And so what the reactor did was it, it did as it was told, and it basically tried to put 200 rods back in there as quickly as possible. But as we know, as we learned before, the end of these boron rods was covered by graphite. Graphite, which isn't a great a great absorber at all, there's basically this like weird pause. So it would take, because of the speed the rods were moving, it would take 18 seconds for the rods to get fully into the core and for the boron to do its job to get its get its neutrons and put them in its bag. Um, and they, and that was just too long. The core didn't have 18, 18 seconds to wait. The core was on a chain reaction, totally out of control. That was all what was needed to explode. Yes. And just to be clear about the um, the rods. So the rods were boron at the top, graphite at the bottom. And when they weren't in the reactor, the reactor was like a big bowl of water with, with nothing in it. So once the rods started coming in, the graphite pushed the water away, which meant the moderator went being replaced by graphite that doesn't really do anything um and then was was the boron was following it afterwards so yes not great um and this led to two explosions uh the this blew the top off the reactor um and all of its containment was basically blown open and it released huge amounts of radioactivity and radioactive nucleides into the air what the kind of what like what exploded and how it exploded and all this kind of stuff. There's a, quite a few explanations as to why what what specifically exploded, but I'm not going to cover them now because they're quite complicated and don't really matter. All we need to know is that it exploded, um, and it was something that no one ever thought could happen. So, explosions happened. Everyone is confused. No one understands what's going on. No one could actually comprehend that it was potentially like a nuclear meltdown. They just thought that like the reactor was intact, but maybe one of the generators had exploded or like a steam system had exploded. Basically, something had happened, something had exploded. But of course, it couldn't be the core because that could never explode. And so they basically didn't really know what was happening. We're trying to find out what was going on. And because they didn't think the reactor had exploded, they were really focused on keeping 
it cool. They were like, right, got to keep it cool. But what they also saw was that uh, a lot of the reactor hall, which was attached to the reactor, was destroyed and was on fire. Uh, They could see that there was water everywhere because the cooling systems had actually been destroyed because everything had been destroyed. But they wanted to kind of make sure that um, this water was still running so that, that it could cool the core down even in reality, when it actually did nothing. So this led to quite a lot of stories about kind of men wandering about in the water, being fully irradiated and soon dying in order to pull, to, to kind of turn valves on and turn water on in order to try and attempt to keep the, the core cool. Within about five minutes, firefighters were on site. So Pripyat and Chernobyl had its own firefighting team, which makes a lot of sense. The firefighters are on site, but of course, uh, no one thinks that it is uh, there's anything happening with radiation. And radiation, as we will know, is terrifying, and you don't know when, where it is, or when it is. Uh, so no one wears any protective clothing. No one limits their time at the site. They basically just wander around as they normally would. And at this point, I really thought that something like a Geiger counter or something would be like, hey, so radioactive in here, you should probably go. But they didn't, they kind of had some, but they didn't really do much. And then I think the radioactiveness was so high that many, they kind of were like, oh, it's broken. Or they just totally didn't believe that the radioactive could be as high as it was. And apparently they had like one Geiger counter that could go up that high, but it was like locked away and no one could get it questionable things i feel and so they still couldn't really just just couldn't comprehend what was going on so the firefighters put out the fire basically to make sure that the other reactors were were more protected and to to see you know make sure that they were were working as normal and even as they were putting the fire out and you can see this in photos you could see like lumps of graphite so like lumps of the control rods just like on the ground which or obviously the most like radioactive material you could have. Um, and many of the firefighters of this initial wave would die of acute radiation sickness in the weeks afterwards. But even with all of this evidence, even with the fire, even with like, hey, literally there's a control rod over there, uh, they still totally denied that the core had blown. And they just didn't do anything at this point. They didn't evacuate anyone. <laughs> they just kind of continued as normal. Uh, well, not continued as normal, but continued thinking the core was there. We've just got to kind of fix what's going on. They kept, like they said, trying to keep the core cool. And people kept saying to Dyatlov, who was in control, that it was it was gone, the core's gone. They kept saying the core's gone, the core's gone. But he just totally refused to believe it. And so he did send, like I said, two of his men, Akimov and Toptunov, to try and release water from the valves. But because the cables to them had been damaged, so they couldn't turn the valves. And so they went and, and opened them by hand, but they basically got immediate radiation sickness once the valves were open and then went for help. Uh, and in reality, the valves did nothing. At this point, obviously, lots of people are getting woken up. Something big's happened at the site. We don't know what it is, but there's been an explosion. There's been an accident. So Brukhanov, uh, who built the site and was still operating it, set up a control room uh, with lots of other senior officials in a bunker beneath the power plant. And they were just trying to understand what had happened. And it took them quite a long time. And there's a lot of like toing and froing of this is happening. No, it's not happening. This is happening. No, it's not happening. Um, a lot of like senior party people ringing and them saying, no, everything's fine uh, when it really isn't. <laughs> but by the Saturday, they had finally 
come to you know accept what has happened so they took radiation readings they kind of tested for specific nucleides to see if they were present um, and these things had been found and so it was really definitive proof that the the reactor had fully blown and that there had been a core meltdown and this eventually filtered out to more and more people uh, through the party, and it, but it was still kept very quiet at this point, very much on a need-to-know basis. Um, and they definitely wouldn't tell anyone that was living in Pripyat, that literally down the road, that this had happened, and they would not let anyone know outside of, of that room, outside of the state. It could not be known by, by international audiences. And so they, at this point, flew in loads of people to this bunker to kind of understand what was going on. Lots of really senior scientists um, and other people flew in to, to support the efforts. And so because this really wasn't, this was kind of the start, right? It had blown, but it then meant a lot of bad things were going to happen. So there, it, it exploded, but the, the reactor was basically still like having a nuclear reaction and it was still burning really, really, really hot and doing all these chain reactions. And so if they didn't find a way of like quelling this this reaction that was like simmering away inside of this exploded core, then there would be a much larger and a much more catastrophic explosion and probably release a whole lot more radiation because it wasn't, you know, somewhat contained in the first one. And they, but they were like, well, what, what do we do? Like, they've never been in this situation before. How do we put out this, like, burning nuclear fuel in the middle of this um, wrecked power plant without killing everyone because no one can actually go near it? And so, you know, they couldn't do any normal firefighting activities because it was so hot that water would just turn to steam anywhere near it. And so they decided... First thing they decided to do was that they decided to do a mix of clay, lead and dolomite needed to be dumped onto the core to try and cool it and to try and cover it. But this was really hard to find, so they found some of them, some of the elements, but they also just used a lot of sand. And they basically used a helicopter where they flew flew the, the sand up as part of a helicopter. They would kind of fly over the reactor and try and dump it in on the core. And there was that big opening and they could kind of see a light within the core, which obviously you shouldn't want to ever see um because that basically means that you're irradiating yourself but it would they could dump it into that in the hope that they were kind of smothering this fire not a safe activity at all a lot of the people involved got yeah very high levels of radiation and at first it kind of seemed to work there was a, a decrease in radiation levels uh, but soon it rose again and it became clear that that wasn't successful and it would become clear in future analysis that actually all of that work that they did was basically for nothing. Um, it didn't didn't make any reasonable impact at all on on the reaction. And so the scientists were getting more and more worried at this point, and they had a very big fear that because the core was so hot, there was a risk of something called which they called the China syndrome. And the China syndrome was based on the theory that the fuel would get so hot it would burn into and then through the ground all the way to the other side of the earth. Um, so it was based in California. So it was like it would go all the way from California through to China. And clearly it wouldn't get that far. But, you know, the theory is right in that it would could potentially cause lots more explosions and it could go very deep into the ground and eventually start to poison things like the water table uh, from which millions of people were drinking. And, um, yeah, really, really cause a really catastrophic incident that would impact millions and millions of people. 
They didn't really know what to do about that either. Um, they just they didn't really want to ask for any help from the West. Um, so they just kind of kept debating on what they would do. Soon they were like, right, we can't throw things in from above. So what we will do is cool it from below. Uh, so they decided that they would build a tunnel underneath the power plant. And from there, uh, they would, um, as quoted, excavate excavation of a chamber deep beneath unit four about five meters high and 30 meters squared designed to house a massive purpose-built water-cooled heat exchanger which would chill the earth and stop the molten corium in its tracks so they started planning that they got a load of um like coal miners in to um to come in and start digging this tunnel um and they were actually quite good at doing the tunnel they did got pretty far with it uh but very very luckily one of the only luckilies I will say in this entire story, they the it, the reactor put itself out, so it finally managed to just just um expire, and it became clear that the reaction had uh yet to cease to cease to be going, um and the levels of radiation really dropped from there, and so they they did eventually see that the fuel had kind of melted through lots and lots of floors within the building, uh, but it had stopped uh, before it got got it down into the ground. And so they uh, they did abandon the tunnel, but they they filled it with concrete to to kind of help with the foundations of of the site. So yes, that's the end of episode one. In episode two, we'll continue discussing the cleanup. Uh, we'll talk about the devastating injuries, the radiation sickness, and the human impact. Um, and then we will talk about the legacy of Chernobyl, which still continues on today. Um, and I will do all of the references for both episodes at the end. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you have any feedback, do drop me a note on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod, or you can always email me, which is when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, please do tell a friend, share on some form of social that you're listening. Um, Cause yeah, I would love to, to try and grow the podcast a bit more. And yeah, I haven't had, it takes so long to like write and, and, record an episode uh, that i barely ever have time to actually promote it so uh, yeah if you do feel like sharing it i will be much appreciative